Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. Today, we continue our examination of Prosecutor Thomas Binger's opening statement as he sets the scene for the jury of downtown Kenosha on the night of August 25th and describes for them some of the key witnesses he plans to call during the trial. That's coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. During the first half of his opening statement, Prosecutor Thomas Binger focused on distinguishing Kyle Rittenhouse and his actions from those of the crowd protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake by a Kenosha police officer. While the protests grew increasingly chaotic, Binger stressed that Kyle Rittenhouse, whom he called an interloper, was the only person to shoot and kill someone that night. After establishing that context for the jury, Prosecutor Binger steps back to address how the 17-year-old Rittenhouse came to have access to a semi-automatic rifle in the first place. He asserts that Dominic Black, a witness for the prosecution, made a straw purchase on behalf of Rittenhouse. A straw purchase is a criminal act in which something, in this case a firearm, is bought by one person on behalf of another who is legally unable to make the purchase themselves. Binger begins. Let's talk about the context of that evening. And I'm going to try and go in a little bit of chronological order to set things up for you so you understand the evidence as it comes into this trial. The first witness you're going to hear from in this trial is a man by the name of Dominic Black. Dominic Black was, at the time of this incident, dating Mackenzie Rittenhouse, who is the defendant's sister. And through Mackenzie, Dominic Black got to know the defendant, and they spent a lot of time together in the months leading up to August 25th, 2020. In fact, on May 1st of 2020, Dominic Black bought the AR-15 for the defendant. That occurred up in Ladysmith, Wisconsin. Dominic Black used money that was given to him by the defendant to go to an Ace Hardware up in Ladysmith and buy the gun in Dominic Black's name. Now you might ask, why was it necessary for Dominic Black to do that? Why couldn't the defendant do that? Because the defendant was 17. And Dominic Black and the defendant knew that because the defendant is 17, he cannot purchase a gun. He cannot legally own a gun. And so this was, in effect, a straw purchase on behalf of Dominic Black, on behalf of the defendant. After the gun is purchased in Ladysmith, Dominic Black and the defendant spend a little time up there at Dominic Black's family's hunting property. And they fire both that AR-15 and one that Dominic Black already had. And the two of them are practicing using their AR-15s at a shooting range that they have on that property. And Mr. Black will tell you some more about that. Then they agreed that that gun would not go home with the defendant to his home in Antioch, Illinois. He would stay here in Kenosha at the residence of Dominic Black's stepfather in a locked gun case. And in fact, after the two of them returned from Ladysmith in early May of 2020, the gun stayed at that residence here in Kenosha 
until the day of August 25th, 2020. Binger then connects the dots between Black, the AR-15, and the events of August 25th. On the night leading up to August 25th, that Monday night, the defendant stayed over at Mr. Black's residence here in Kenosha. And the two of them decided on that next day, Tuesday, August 25th, that they would do something about what was going on in Kenosha. So at one point earlier in the day, they come down here. They work on cleaning up some graffiti on some buildings here downtown. Then they decide they want to come back later that night and protect a local business, a business called Car Source, which is located at 59th and Sheridan. Now, as I talked to you a little bit about yesterday, Car Source actually has three locations very close in this downtown area. Location will be of paramount importance to understanding how events unfolded on the night of August 25th. The downtown area of Kenosha, Wisconsin is organized in a grid. Sheridan Road is the main street that runs north-south, with a number of streets intersecting and running east and west. The streets are relatively narrow, and the surrounding buildings are modest in stature. It's a small town, so small in fact, that all three car source stores, car source is the used car dealership mentioned by Binger, are located within four blocks of each other. The car source referenced by the prosecutor is located at the intersection of Sheridan Road and 59th Street, this is the location near where the initial encounter between Rittenhouse and the first man shot, Joseph Rosenbaum, occurred, and it will come up often in testimony during the trial. We will call it the 59th Street Car Source. On August 24th, the Car Source location one block north at 58th and Sheridan was destroyed by protesters, as was another used car business right across the street. The destruction of these two dealerships was the catalyst for Rittenhouse and Black's decision to defend the 59th Street car source. Here is Binger describing the destruction of the 58th Street car source. One of them was on the east side of Sheridan Road at 58th and Sheridan. Either on Sunday or Monday night, I think it was on Monday night, August 24th, that entire property was pretty much destroyed. There were multiple cars in the parking lot that were set fire and completely burned out. The building itself was damaged as well. Right across the street from there is another car source location that also sold used cars. And some of those cars had been damaged on the night of Monday, August 24th. So on Tuesday, when the defendant and Mr. Black are out and about, they encounter one of the owners of car source. And they talk to him about protecting their 59th Street location that night. And there's some discussion about that. In the afternoon, Mr. Black and the defendant go out to Jelinski's on Highway 31, Green Bay Road, and they acquire straps so that they can sling those guns around themselves when they come back to the downtown area that night. And eventually later that evening, they return. They meet up with some other folks that are interested in protecting car source. A gun strap is a belt that fastens a firearm to a person's body, making it much more difficult to take the firearm away from the person. Prosecutor Binger next explains how the third car source store makes its first of several appearances in this story, describing what Rittenhouse and Black did after acquiring their gun straps. Originally, they start out at 63rd Street Car Source, which is the third and final car source location. But then they agree, we're going to go to the 59th Street, 59th and Sheridan location and protect that location to make sure no one damages the cars, no one damages the property. And I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with that. Protecting that property is entirely lawful, totally understandable. And it's something that many people here in Kenosha did. And there's a group of people, including the defendant and Dominic Black, that take up positions at 59th Street. Some of them, like the defendant, are on the ground 
in the parking lot where as people are walking by on the street, they're having interactions with these people. Dominic Black will testify he took up a position on the roof. He did that because he didn't want to be on the ground close to where other folks were, close to where potential issues might arise. He wanted to stay a little bit removed from all of that. Didn't want to get directly involved in it. While Black sought distance from the palpable tension in the streets, Rittenhouse, Binger asserts, felt no such aversion. You will hear and see videos of sequence of events going on around Kenosha that night. The evening begins with large-scale protests, large-scale, uh, no other way to put it, rioting that's occurring right outside these windows, right in front of the courthouse here at Civic Center Park. There is a crowd of police that have lined up to protect this building, to protect the public safety building, which is right next door. And there are a large number of protesters that are agitating. They are screaming at the police. They are throwing projectiles. Police are shooting rubber bullets, tear gas, etc. It is a very volatile situation at Civic Center Park. Now, that's at 56th and Sheridan, about three blocks north of the car source where the defendant was. But as the evening goes on, the police decide to move the line of protesters south on Sheridan. And eventually, they pass the car source at 59th and Sheridan. The police establish a line at 60th and Sheridan, one block south. Now, as that process is going on, many of these protesters pass by the defendant and the people that he's with at 59th Street. Words are exchanged. There is confrontation. There is a little bit of hostility. No one is hurt. No one fires a gun. No one is injured. But clearly there's antagonism. It is clear that this is a crowd that is not on the same side as the defendant, that does not see him as an ally, does not see him and his group as someone that they identify with. And as I said, there is a hostile inter exchange there for a while. In fact, at one point, members of the crowd pull one of the dumpsters from the property out into the street and attempt to start it on fire. And some of the other folks that are there with the defendant go out and put the fire out and have some very harsh interactions with those people in the street. I believe the evidence will show that it is this process that demonstrated for the defendant that this is a crowd that is not a safe crowd to be in. This is a crowd that does not view him as an ally. This is a crowd that if he ventures out into it, there could be problems. As we mentioned in our last episode, Binger uses no media elements in his presentation, so his descriptions of the video are not accompanied by visual references. We will return to this detail in later episodes and in our recap at the end of the week. 
After recounting the tumultuous scene that unfolded as Kenosha police began shepherding the protesters south on Sheridan past the 59th Street car source, Prosecutor Binger addresses what Kyle Rittenhouse did once the danger to that car source location had passed. The situation has moved on. Does the defendant stay there? Does he decide that he's done what he set out to do and it's time to go home? No. The evidence will show that the defendant, another individual in the group by the name of Ryan Balch, who you will hear from, decide to venture out into the crowd. Binger asserts that when the Kenosha police line guiding the crowd south on Sheridan Road reached 60th Street, Rittenhouse made a fateful choice. They cross the police line at 60th and Sherry, and they walk amongst this group of hostile protesters. At some point, they both wind up at a gas station on the southeast corner of 60th and Sheridan called Ultimate Gas. And you'll see some video of the scene there. It is a scene, again, of groups of people that are clashing with one another verbally. There's some shoving going on. And in the midst of this is Joseph Rosenbaum. At this point, Prosecutor Binger introduces the jury to Joseph Rosenbaum, the first person shot and killed by Kyle Rittenhouse. In his description of Rosenbaum, Binger pays particular attention to a bag that Rosenbaum was carrying, seeking to blunt any suggestion by the defense that Rittenhouse could have perceived the bag as a weapon or a threat. And you will hear some testimony about Mr. Rosenbaum and his activities that night. Mr. Rosenbaum had been discharged from the hospital that very day and had come back to his home of Kenosha, had met up with his girlfriend, Carrie Ann Swart. He couldn't stay with her, so he left her and came downtown and got caught up in the midst of these protests. You will see him on videos. You will see photographs of him as he's walking around. He is carrying a plastic bag. Part of that plastic bag is clear and see-through. It has a string, white string drawstring to it. It is the type of bag, I believe the evidence will show, that you get at the hospital when you're asked to put all of your personal possessions in a bag, shoes, your watch, your phone, your jewelry, etc. That's the type of bag it is. And I believe the evidence will show that he was carrying it around most of that evening. The prosecutor transitions to anticipating the defense assertion that Rittenhouse felt justifiably threatened by Joseph Rosenbaum. And at very various points, the evidence will show that Mr. Rosenbaum is agitated. He is getting in people's faces. He is using obscenities. He is essentially daring people to respond. In fact, at ultimate gas, I believe the evidence will show that he actually gets right up in the face of armed people who are similarly armed as the defendant, who have similar AR-15 type rifles on. And he is literally confronting them in their faces. None of those folks shoot him. They push him away. He's five foot three, by the way, 150 pounds. They push him away. No one appears to take him as a serious danger. Binger then traces Rittenhouse's next set of actions. The defendant is at the ultimate gas station during part of this. So is Ryan Balch. I believe Mr. Balch will testify that there was an understanding that when we cross south of 60th, we stay together. We try not to intervene in anything. But if we get separated, head back to 59th Street, where our original group is. Mr. Balch does. The defendant attempts to. He comes up to the police line. They won't let him pass. He says, I work at that business and points to 59th Street. And again, they won't let him directly through the line. 
Now, I believe the evidence will show that he could have easily gone a block in either direction if he really wanted to go back, but he turns away from the police line, returns to the ultimate gas station. And a few minutes later, we see him on the video of a man by the name of Corey Elijah, who will testify very shortly here in this trial. Mr. Corey Elijah was one of these people out on the streets who was Facebook live streaming the events of that night. And he catches the defendant passing right in front of him with a fire extinguisher. The gun still slung around his body strapped to his body. And Corey Elijah will testify, this caught his attention. What? Where's he going with this fire extinguisher? And so Corey Elijah decides to follow with his video, recording the entire way. And we will show you that video. You will see that as Corey Elijah leaves the ultimate gas station at 60th and Sheridan and heads south, he passes by the defendant, who by this point is walking, holding a fire extinguisher in his hand, all by himself. Although the prosecutor doesn't get into it, this fire extinguisher will come up again in the defense opening statement, and so it bears pointing out. Binger continues. Corey Elijah, I don't think, registers that that's the person I originally saw, and he keeps on passing him, and as he continues, he passes by Joseph Rosenbaum, who at this point has taken his shirt off. He's got shorts on, and he's taken his shirt and kind of wrapped it around his head. And Mr. Rosenbaum is still carrying that plastic hospital bag and walking down Sheridan towards the 63rd Street car source. The defendant is behind him at some distance. As they get down to the 6200, into the 6300 block of Sheridan Road, that block on the west side of Sheridan has a house right at the corner of 62nd and Sheridan. And then on the south end of that block, the south half is the car source lot. You will hear testimony from someone from the FBI who was up in a plane that night taking video. And we will show you the video. It is an infrared video, which means it picks up heat. This is at nighttime, so regular cameras, especially from an airplane, aren't going to be able to see everything. So the infrared helps us to see in the dark. The video picks up Mr. Rosenbaum. It is quite clear to see him because he is a white blob. Infrared picks up heat. He doesn't have his shirt on. So the cloth of a shirt would help conceal some of that heat, but when you don't have your shirt on, that heat radiates, and the infrared picks it up more clearly. So he's very easy to see in the video as a white dot. You see him running towards the 63rd car source, and behind him, running in the same direction, following him, is the defendant. As they get to the 63rd Street car source, there are some cars on the north side of that lot. Mr. Rosenbaum peels off behind those cars, and the defendant stops on the other side of those cars and turn to turns towards Mr. Rosenbaum. Now, obviously, in an infrared video from a plane overhead, we don't know exactly what was going on at that very moment. We don't know what words were said. But what's clear is whatever that confrontation that was initiated by the defendant started, it caused Mr. Rosenbaum to come around the cars and start running after the defendant. The defendant drops the fire extinguisher right there and runs, carrying his AR-15. At some point during that foot pursuit, the defendant turns around, points the gun at Mr. Rosenbaum, who puts his hands up in the air. Now remember, he has got no shirt on. He's got his hands up in the air, almost like, what are you going to do? Binger is careful to emphasize that Rosenbaum had his hands in the air and was clearly unarmed just before another critical inciting incident occurred. The defendant stops, pointing at Mr. Rosenbaum, continues to run. And right around this time, there is a gunshot from someone else who we have identified by the name of Joshua Zeminski. This is an individual who's walking on the sidewalk, probably 30 feet away 
from where the defendant and Mr. Rosenbaum are running. Mr. Zeminski, for reasons only he can explain, decided to take his handgun and fire it one time in the air. As I said, this is in a different direction, many feet away from where the defendant was. Mr. Rosenbaum continues to pursue the defendant, and we will have Detective Martin Howard testify that he's timed the gap between Mr. Zeminski's shot and the eventual gunshots is about 2.5 or 2.6 seconds. Mr. Rosenbaum closes on the defendant. The defendant turns and fires four shots at Mr. Rosenbaum. You will hear the testimony from the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner, Dr. Douglas Kelly, that Mr. Rosenbaum suffered five wounds total from four bullets. Dr. Kelly will testify that the first two wounds that were inflicted upon Mr. Rosenbaum were to his lower extremities. We're not sure which order they were in, but one was to his right pelvis, fracturing his pelvis, and one was to his left lower thigh. Dr. Kelly will testify that these wounds caused Mr. Rosenbaum to start falling face forward. And you will see video of his body where it is found. He lands on his face, face down on the ground. As he is fallen, falling, the defendant fires two more shots. One of them hits the defendant in the back, or I'm sorry, Mr. Rosenbaum in the back. And that is the shot that kills Mr. Rosenbaum, according to Dr. Kelly. After a brief pause to allow the moment of Rosenbaum's death to register with the jury, Binger moves on to describe another witness from whom the panel will hear, a witness whose actions Binger uses as a point of comparison and contrast with those of Kyle Rittenhouse. You will hear testimony from someone by the name of Richie McGinnis. Richie McGinnis is a reporter who came to Kenosha to cover the events of that night. And at some point shortly before these shootings, he encounters the defendant at 59th Street and interviews him. He talks to the defendant and then follows the defendant down Sheridan Road and is right behind the defendant as these shootings are occurring. In fact, he is in the car source lot. He is behind Mr. Rosenbaum when Mr. Rosenbaum is shot. And Mr. McGinnis will testify that one of those rounds came close to him, which is the basis for the count that we've alleged that Mr. McGinnis was uh, recklessly uh, harmed or, or placed in danger by the defendant. Mr. McGinnis will testify that when he saw Joseph Rosenbaum shot and fall to the ground, he immediately ran up and attempted to treat Mr. Rosenbaum. He took off his shirt. He used it to try and stem some bleeding. He rolled Mr. Rosenbaum over onto his back, and he's attempting to administer first aid. Many other people respond at that very moment to that location and attempt to help Mr. Rosenbaum. They eventually lift him up. They carry him across the street to Freighter South, formerly known as Kenosha Memorial Hospital, KMH, which happens to be right across the street. These folks load him into a hospital SUV that's there in the back of it, and it races off towards the emergency room to try and save Mr. Rosenbaum's life. That's what Mr. McGinnis does. The defendant, after shooting Mr. Rosenbaum, gets on his phone, calls Dominic Black and says, I just shot somebody and starts running away. Now, one of the things that you will see and hear in this case is that the defendant throughout this entire evening held himself out as an EMT, as a medic, that he's carrying a medical bag with him strapped to his body. And yet in this time of Mr. Rosenbaum there on the ground, injured, potentially dying, the defendant offers no aid but instead runs. After Binger describes McGinnis's actions, he returns to the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse. 
He runs up Sheridan Road. He encounters another member of their group from 59th Street, who you will hear testify by the name of Jason Lakowski. Jason Lakowski is similarly armed. He's a former Marine. He had been with the defendant at 59th Street and had come down in response to the gunshots. Mr. Lakowski will testify that he met Mr. Rittenhouse as the defendant was fleeing the scene. And Mr. Rittenhouse said to him, I didn't shoot anybody, but I need help. And Mr. Lakowski says, head up towards the police. So the defendant starts running north on Sheridan. The crowd starts yelling, that guy, the defendant, just shot somebody. Because that's all the knowledge they have at that point. And it's true. So they begin to chase after him. They clearly believe he's an active shooter. And they try and stop him. And I've already described to you the events that follow. Mr. Huber, the unknown individual, and Mr. Grosskreutz. So when we talk in this trial about the nights of August 25th, we need to keep in mind the context of that night. We need to keep in mind the fact that there were hundreds of people on the street that night experiencing the same chaos, the same loud noises, the same gunfire, the same arson, the same tear gas, the same hostile confrontations with people who believe the opposite of them. And yet out of these hundreds of people, only one person killed anyone that night. Only one person shot anyone that night. When we consider the reasonableness of the defendant's actions, I ask you to keep that in mind. Again, Binger returns to what has become his refrain during this opening. In all of the chaos that night, Rittenhouse was the only one to kill someone. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next episode as we conclude our examination of the prosecution's opening statement and as we explore the moment where Thomas Binger experiences the consequences of his decision not to seek to use media elements in his presentation. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Mackenzie Moser. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. The episode was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.